Michael Mulligan, sorry about that. A little bit of noise in the background here. We've got people coming in because they're giving us toys for Toy Mountain. Good morning. Good morning. I must say those are happy noises in the background. There's actually a mountain of toys here. It's great. People are uh, coming in continuously and contributing to it. So uh, I can't imagine a uh, happier background noise. All right. So uh, if our audience hears anything from time to time throughout our broadcast, that's all that's happening. They don't need to worry about anything that uh, may or may not be happening. Cause some people are yelling and cheering and stuff like that. And uh, So anyway, uh, now that our audience is aware, do want to start off with a little bit of breaking news that our newsroom has been covering right now. We have a sentence. We now know the length after the trial of uh, Andrew Berry. I'm seeing here a headline sentence to life, no parole for... For 22 years. How does this all fit together? Well, I mean, it's a uh, end to this uh, stage of things and the end of a uh, very sad uh, uh, saga for the community, of course. Um, the decision that the judge had to make uh, was a uh, difficult one. Um, the sentence, of course, is automatically life in prison. Uh, there was no uh, discretion in that regard. Uh, but she had to make a decision about what uh, length of time he would need to wait. Uh, before he would be permitted to even ask uh, to be released on parole. Uh, that was set at 22 years. Uh, the possible range of uh, parole ineligibility was between 10 years and 25 years, and she selected 22. The other important thing to remember about that is that uh, a parole ineligibility period does not mean that you are released after 22 years. All that means is that after that ineligibility period, you can ask to be released. It's simply the period of time you need to wait before you can make the request. Um, and, uh, of course, there are uh, some circumstances where a person never does get released. So I think that's important uh, to remember. Um, another thing which is, I think, important to reflect upon is the sentencing uh, process uh, now in a murder uh, trial. Um, there was, of course, a request for the uh, jury to optionally make a recommendation, non-binding one, in terms of the length of parole ineligibility. Uh, and then uh, we also had uh, this week uh, a number of victim impact statements uh, put before the uh, court uh, to form part of the sentencing process. Um, I think it's worth touching upon what those are for and how a judge is to make use of them. Um, the sentencing process is not a, a three-way process between the victims of crime, the Crown, and the accused. The purpose of the victim impact statements are to inform the judge as to the uh, harm caused to the victim so that the judge can take that into account when determining what the appropriate sentence would be. But that process doesn't involve, for example, uh, individuals indicating what they think the sentence should be. Uh, the purpose of what went on was to let the judge know uh, what impact uh, the offense had on the uh, people in the community, um, and so the judge could take that into account uh, when making her uh, decision today about parole uh, ineligibility. I note there is reference here made to the fact that the sentences will be concurrent, I would assume, as opposed to consecutive. I was under the impression sentences are nearly always concurrent here in Canada as opposed to the Americans, where we hear, you know, 150 years for this person because they did this, 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 and this, and it all added together. How does that work? Well, uh, for most sentences, the default position is that sentences would run concurrently at the same time. Um, the sentence, of course, of life in prison, which is the mandatory sentence required for first or second degree murder, uh, you can't make that consecutive to anything. Of course, I it's life. You can't. Uh, yeah. That's it. Right? All right, fair enough. That's all you've got is that one life. Um, th there was, uh, in fact, however, a, a change a few years ago now, which would permit a judge to impose consecutive parole ineligibility periods 
um, in some cases that wasn't asked for and was not done here, uh, but that would permit uh, a longer parole ineligibility uh, period if those were to run uh, consecutive to each other. Um, the, the challenge with that, of course, is uh, in, to some extent trying to predict now uh, the future dangerousness or risk that somebody is going to pose 25 years down the road. We, we need to bear in mind, of course, that we have to presume that the uh, National Parole Board is going to do its job. They're not going to release somebody into the community who poses a, a danger. That's their principal duty. Um, and so, to a large extent, uh, I think we need to rely upon uh, the Parole Board to do its job. And, of course, they're going to be in a, a better position to assess somebody 22 or 25 years or whatever it might be uh, down the road, that's going to be an easier process than a judge trying to think ahead about, you know, what's this person likely to be uh, like 25 years from now. That's a, a very challenging thing to do. Um, so um, for sentences other than life in prison, uh, a judge does have discretion in Canada to impose consecutive sentences, but a, a judge would always need to bear in mind uh, the concept of what's called totality in the sentence. So for example, if you had somebody who robbed a bank uh, and then drove dangerously driving away from the bank and also didn't have a permit for their gun uh, and also had some drugs in their pocket, if you simply figured out what the sentence might be for each of those individual offenses and added them all up, you might end up with an aggregate sentence that would be, you know, 80 years or something. So, well, that's just more than what ought to be imposed for that um, activity, which was all really one unlawful transaction. And so, a judge always has to be alive to that concept of totality when deciding what a, an appropriate overall sentence would be. Interesting. Thank you for that, that guidance and how all this fits together, Michael Mulligan. Um, a couple of other interesting uh, stories that we have on the docket today. You've helped us out with uh, standards of review with administrative law in the past. The idea that a court's decision has weight. It is not like a slot machine where one may pull the slot machine until one receives the outcome that they desire. That's not what appeals are for. That's not what the Court of Appeal is for. That's not what the Supreme Court of Canada is for. So being able to overturn a finding of a judge at any stage at the system has to have uh, certain standards met. I've heard reasonableness and correctness. What does that mean? Sure, that's an excellent question that courts have actually struggled with. The Supreme Court of Canada this morning um, issued a decision in a trio of cases that try to provide some clarity for that question for uh, cases involving judicial review. And a judicial review would be where a court's called upon to review a decision made by an administrative uh, body or tribunal. Okay. Like most decisions that affect people aren't made by judges. They're made by sort of other people in government. Like you go and apply for a building permit or you ask for a driver's license or, you know, somebody decides whether to issue you a passport or not, whatever it might be. Um, and those decisions are all ultimately subject to that concept of a judicial review. And that's an important thing from the perspective of ensuring sort of the rule of law to make sure people are treated in a consistent and fair fashion. Yes. But there's been over the years uh, legal debate about, you know, on what basis should that be done? And you don't want to have a circumstance where a, a judge is trying to second guess every decision about whether you should get a driver's license or what about that passport. The courts would be utterly clogged. Uh, and for many of those decisions, the administrative decision maker is in, no doubt in a better position to make the decision. If, if all you do is, you know, conduct driving exams, you're probably in a better position to sort out 
should this person be driving than some Supreme Court judge six months from now trying to figure out what's to be made of your driving <laughs> score. Right? I can see the judge instructing counsel to provide one, yes, one book on driving instructors <laughs> by this date at this time to review. Yeah, I, okay, I can see that. So there's an effort to use some restraint. All right. but, and the Supreme Court has articulated that in, in various ways over the years. The, the basic approach that a judge is to use now is to apply either a standard of reasonableness or a, or a standard of correctness. Um, and one of the complicating things is for courts to decide, well, when do you apply the standard of you've got to come to the right decision versus when do you just have to make a reasonable decision, right? So let's take the example of, you know, should somebody get a passport? All right. You, uh, the, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada has tried to make clear that the starting point should be whether the decision was a reasonable one, which means... There are a range of possible decisions in all of those sort of cases. Should somebody get a passport? Should they be issued their driver's license? And a judge, when doing a review of those decisions, should not be starting but to ask himself, would I, the judge, have given this person a driver's license, or would I, the judge, have issued them a passport? They need to presumptively, and the Supreme Court has tried to clarify this this morning, start from the proposition that you just ask, was that decision reasonable? Mm. Not would I have come to the same decision, but was that within the realm of reasonable things? Was it logical? Was it consistent with the facts before the person? You know, that sort of thing. And that higher standard of being correct should be reserved for issues involving things like, um, did the decision maker have jurisdiction to make the decision at all? Uh, or, was the decision involving some general principle of law that would affect things more broadly? Uh, and so the general approach the Supreme Court of Canada has tried to make clear is judges should ask themselves, is the decision reasonable? And the three cases they came out with today have some interesting fact patterns, and a couple of them sort of illustrate how you might pick one of those things over the other. One of the cases, for example, involved a, a young man who was born in 1994 in Canada, uh, and then in 2010, his parents, who had moved to the United States, were found out to be Russian spies. They were deported to Russia as part of a spy swap. And then this young man, who had no idea that his parents were Russian spies, applied to renew his passport. And some junior person at the passport office uh, originally said, well, you need a birth certificate, so we got that. And then said, that wasn't good enough, you need to go get a... Uh, some proof of Canadian citizenship, he got that. Uh, and then he was still told no, pursuant to this section that allows, uh, it excludes citizenship being given to people who are, this is the language, mm -hmm. a diplomatic or consular official or other representative employee or employee in Canada of a foreign government. Hmm. The idea would be, let's say you're the uh, diplomat from Switzerland and you have a child while you're here, unlike the starting point, which would be, hey, you're born in Canada, you would presumptively be Swiss, right? You were here, you had, your parents were diplomats, uh, that's where you would become a citizen of. So the, the, the issue was, well, look, these people were spies. They, they didn't enjoy diplomatic immunity, and this person didn't even know his parents were spies. He just thought he was Canadian, was born here, went to school here. But nonetheless, he was denied this passport. And so eventually, this made all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada as part of this trio of cases today. And the Supreme Court of Canada indicated that, look, this is the kind of decision which should be assessed on the standard of reasonableness, right? It's sort of an example of that. So, so just to understand a layperson's yeah. uh, perspective, two people might come to different decisions, yet both of those decisions would be within the, the realm of reason and therefore not overturnable That's on that correct. standard. That's okay. right. Okay. Now, on this particular case for the fellow who was the son of the Russian spies, 
the Supreme Court of Canada said, look, the proper approach is reasonableness. Okay. You, you know, you could come to different decisions here. However, on the facts of this case, the junior person at the passport office didn't take into account previous cases, decisions in court, the debates in the uh, uh, debate surrounding this legislation, and this decision was simply unreasonable. Okay. And what was intended here could not possibly include that. Okay. The other end of the continuum was one that will also affect people. It's called, uh, it involves Bell Canada. Uh, and uh, this was the uh, case which uh, caused uh, people to be able to see all of the TV commercials from the Super Bowl last year. And that was an deci administrative decision by the CRTC uh, that uh, concluded that uh, the network had to broadcast the entirety of the uh, Super Bowl, including the commercials. Uh, Bell uh, Canada uh, appealed that decision by way of a judicial review, uh, and ultimately this was an example the Supreme Court of Canada used of a circumstance where uh, the real issue was, did the CRT have power to regulate that sort of thing at all, not is that a reasonable decision okay. or not? But it's like, do you even have the power to decide whether the uh, broadcaster has to broadcast the Super Bowl commercials? Hmm. And so that was an example the Supreme Court of Canada used today as an example of a decision that has to meet the standard of being correct, not just reasonable. You can't just look at your legislation and say, look, I can reasonably do something here that's really not covered by the legislation. Boy, that seems like a reasonable thing to do. That would be an example of where you actually have to be right about whether you've got the authority to do something at all. And so that was an example they gave today of where when a court's reviewing that, they can review it from the point of view of not just could you come to the conclusion that you're allowed to regulate what commercials have to be on the Super Bowl, but do you have the authority to do that at all? Uh, and so the short of it is the Supreme Court of Canada found that the CRTC did not have the power to decide whether the commercials ought to run with the Super Bowl, and so uh, next year, I suspect we may have the languages simultaneous substitution <laughs> of the commercials with Canadian uh, commercials running instead. All right. So there we go. Standards of review. And we didn't even have to get into Dunsmere. I'm, I'm wiping the sweat off my brow. <laughs> All right. Uh, quick break. We're back in just a moment. Legally Speaking continues on CFAX 1070. We continue Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan as we take a look at the interesting news stories of the week involving legal issues. Uh, Ticketmaster, Michael Mulligan, unsuccessful, I'm reading here, in trying to stop a class action from proceeding. Set this one up for us. Yeah, this was a decision that just came out. It's a BC case, uh, and it's a uh, case which is intended to be a class action uh, suing Ticketmaster uh, on a number of theories, including alleged breaches of the Competition Act and the Business Practices Consumer Protection Act. Uh, that's a, a BC statute. Mm -hmm. And the essence of it is that Ticketmaster apparently also produces a piece of software called Trade Desk. Hmm. What is Trade Desk? Well, it all starts with the sort of the terms on the uh, Ticketmaster site when you go to buy a ticket. And on the Ticketmaster site, uh, it uh, talks about uh, things like all British Columbia residents, uh, um, it speaks about uh, the idea that uh, you're not allowed to use ticket bots or other things to try to purchase a whole bunch of tickets to then scalp at a higher price, mm -hmm. trying to suggest that the process of buying tickets on Ticketmaster would be fair for everyone, right? Well, Ticketmaster also makes this software called Trade Desk, which they then uh, sell to people who are ticket brokers. Mm -hmm. And Trade Desk uh, apparently involves what's described as inventory management, uh, for people who have a large number of tickets they wish to buy and sell. Hmm. And one of the uh, functions of Trade Desk 
apparently includes the capacity to put in like multiple hundreds of Ticketmaster accounts such that even if uh, one account is only allowed to buy, you know, six or eight tickets for that U2 concert or whatever it might be, you could, with the assistance of Trade Desk, if you have a whole bunch of different uh, accounts to buy tickets, it would help you automate the process of buying all these tickets and then organizing your hundreds of tickets so that you could then list them on the site which is owned by Ticketmaster to resell them. So um, you created so, de facto bot. Yeah. It, I mean, hmm. I don't know that it's the bot, yeah. but it would help you manage your whole okay. pile of okay. tickets. And okay. so the I guess the complaint at its heart would be, hey, look, you're running this site saying that everyone's got a fair chance to buy tickets. Then you also own the resale site, and you're also selling this software to help people manage their giant pile of tickets, which they wish to resell. Um, and the suggestion there is that that is sort of in a broad sense, hey, that's not fair. Uh, but the, hey, that's not fair, is articulated as being a breach of these things like the Competition Act or the BC Practices and Consumer Protection Act. So that's the background of it. Uh, and what's happened is that there are several class actions in different provinces all dealing with Ticketmaster. There's one in Saskatchewan, Quebec, Ontario, and BC. And like I think the practices developed with class actions, companies who are being sued in that way put a great deal of effort into trying to prevent the case from being what's called certified as a class action. They don't ever want to get to the point where you're having a trial on the merits about whether trade desk uh, or their activity here is in violation of these various acts. So a great deal of time and effort is put into things like this application, which was an application by Ticketmaster in BC to say, hey judge, you shouldn't allow the BC case to proceed because, look, there's one already going on in Saskatchewan. Just let that one go. It might cover the waterfront here. It's not fair. We shouldn't have to defend two or three of these things. Let's mm -hmm. just leave it to Saskatchewan. Yes. Well, that didn't get traction. And mm. one of the reasons it didn't get traction with the judge who decided it is the BC action specifically pleads or relies upon things like that act that I mentioned, the yeah. Business Practices and Consumer Protection Act, which is just a thing in BC. And the proposed BC class action uh, is also restricted just to people who live in BC. They're not trying to cover the whole waterfront across the country. Um, and so essentially this was an effort by Ticketmaster to try to stop the BC case um, and try to then defend the one in Saskatchewan. I guess they thought they would have had some better shot uh, defending that thing. The other interesting element of this decision is that Ticketmaster was also in this case where they were sued, they, they would get served with the notice of civil claim, Ticketmaster didn't want to have to file a reply. Usually what happens is you want to sue somebody, you give them a notice of civil claim saying, here's why I'm suing you, mm -hmm. and the person you give that to would then file a reply to the civil claim saying, well, here's why I don't think uh, I should pay you any money, here's mm -hmm. my explanation. Mm -hmm. Ticketmaster really didn't want to have to file that, and they hadn't. And they were relying on some uh, cases where uh, judges found that it would be unfair to make them even explain why they don't owe the money until after the certification issue has been decided, which again, that's become the battleground on these class action cases. But once again, the judge decided, no, there's no basis for not filing a reply to at least set out why it is you say that uh, trade desk or these other practices that you're engaged in don't violate these acts. You've got 60 days, Ticketmaster, file your reply and the BC case can go ahead. And then what often happens in these class actions is they have a big legal fight over the certification. And if the thing gets certified, 
that would then focus the mind, if you're a Ticketmaster, on, okay, here's your potential liability. There might be, you know, this many hundreds of thousands of people. There could be a big award now, uh, and there's a higher probability that the thing will settle uh, if uh, and when uh, certification flows. So there's just a great deal of legal effort put in by corporate defendants to not file the reply, have the thing held off while some other one might go on, resist getting certified, appealing that decision. So that's where the legal fight has uh, focused. But I suppose the uh, takeaway for people is, you know, if you're somebody who's wound up purchasing tickets on Ticketmaster or from the uh, resale site that they uh, own, uh, at the end of the day, StubHub, I think that's the uh, the name of it, Yes. Um, owned by Ticketmaster, um, you may wind up with some uh, compensation depending on how this thing plays out. I'd say don't hold your breath. You're, we're, they'll probably be at this for the next five or ten years, but someone out there is uh, fighting Ticketmaster, and uh, if you think the idea of them also selling this trade desk software uh, it doesn't seem particularly fair. Somebody's out there making that argument for you. I don't even want to know what the standards of review might be, depending on where this goes one <laughs> way or the other. Maybe that's for another day. Yeah. All right, Michael Mulligan, appreciate your uh, knowledge and insight as always. Thank you so much for coming in with our time-delayed uh, segment. Uh, uh, let's see, how much time do we have left? We've got about 30 seconds. Any final thoughts? Well, I must say on the Ticketmaster uh, case, one of the interesting things is that Ticketmaster puts on their website a link to a, a number of uh, case, a number of stories that have considered ticket pricing in the past, including a very interesting one by Freakonomics the, in that uh, book and uh, subsequent stories that talks about the fundamental issue being that tickets initially are sold at a lower price than what the market will bear uh, because uh, people putting on concerts don't want to appear to be greedy. Uh, and by doing that, you virtually guarantee you're going to wind up with this uh, secondary market. So that's the sort of thing that Ticketmaster is pointing to, saying, hey, look, this is just a function of the market. How are we supposed to stop it? Uh, you know, this isn't the fault of us and our trade desk software. This is just the law of economics. Michael Mulligan, legally speaking, the second half of our second hour, normally every week here on CFAX 1070 on a Thursday. Quick break. News is next.